go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 7 this morning. Mark chapter 7. And we are going to pick up in the middle of a conflict and a confrontation here. And I'm going to go back and give you the context in a bit. But let me begin by just reading Mark seven fourteen to 23, which will be the focus of our sermon this morning. Mark writes, And he, that is Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, fornications or sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, the context of this passage flows immediately out of a great conflict that just occurred in verses 1 to 13. So let's look at that. Again, Mark writes, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes or teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? A lot of assumption going on in that verse. Jesus doesn't answer them. Not the way they wanted. Verse 6, it says, And He said to them, this is shocking. I mean, it's amazing. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you pretenders, play actors, hypocrites, fakes, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus nullifying or making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do and then enter the crowd once again it's interesting what's happening here the crowd was there all along they'd been following him from the time of the wilderness they followed him there they were gathered with him there and 
when the Pharisees showed up, they backed away in reverence to their religious leaders. And, and here what we're seeing happen, happening in verses 1 to 13 is the Pharisees and scribes come from the Jerusalem council, if you will, the Sanhedrin. And they gather around Jesus to, at first glance, ask a question of him. In reality, they're investigating Jesus. This is not a question. This is an accusation. They're accusing him because of his disciples' activity and what they did and what they were allowed to do in eating with unwashed hands. They're accusing him of being a false teacher. They're doing that because, again, his disciples didn't ceremonially wash their hands according to the traditions of the elders. Now, there's no violation of Scripture here whatsoever. Scripture didn't command this. This is the tradition of the elders handed down one to another. But what happens next when we come to the section that we're in is is amazing. And even in verse 5, as I pointed out a minute ago, what happened there was shocking. Jesus' response to their question and accusation shocked these religious leaders of the day because he didn't really answer their question. Instead, he exposed them as hypocrites who elevate the traditions of men over the commandments of God, and as he said, thereby nullifying or supplanting the word of God by the words of men. And he tells us why they did it. By quoting from Isaiah, he tells us that their hearts were far from God. It's no accident then that he addresses the heart in the section that we're talking about here this morning in 14 to 23. Because here in 1 to 13, he is addressing the heart of the Pharisees and the scribes and their distortion of God's law for the sake of their own traditions and praise. But he, again, didn't directly answer the question that's posed in verse 5. But he's going to. The question really relates to this. They're, they're posing a question that's saying, what really does defile a man since your disciples get away with this? What defiles a man in God's sight? Their answer would be to break the traditions of men that they have been passing down. And so in the next section here, 14, even to 15, Jesus is going to powerfully and clearly answer what's in their hearts. And he does it in a very unique way, in a way that I love to see Jesus do. The people who didn't feel like they could come near, he looks right past the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders of the day, and says, you people, come here. Come here. In 14 and 15, Jesus calls powerfully, and I will say prophetically, if you will, calls the crowd back to himself after this confrontation with the Pharisees and scribes. Let's look at verse 14 now. And he called the people to him again. They were there previous. He's calling them back because they backed away. And he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. And when Jesus says this, we need to understand something. This is, again, an authoritative call here, a prophetic call from him to the crowd. He's saying, listen to me. Grasp what I'm about to teach you. Hang on to it. He's emphasizing very strongly that what he is about to say is going to be critically important to understand. Here's why. What he's about to say in the next part of this text here that we see, this next part will have him answering them very concisely the question that was posed, and he's going to critically destroy the way the scribes and Pharisees, and consequently all the Jews who followed their teaching, understood the issue of man's defilement. What he's doing here is saying to you, look, you're taught by these men, these religious leaders of the day, 
You're taught that by following their traditions, this is how a sinner can keep himself pure before God, have a right standing before holy God. So the critical issue is this. He's saying, look, eternal life is at stake in what I'm about to say to you. It hinges on this. It hinges on understanding what I am about to say to you, all of you. And what he says next is basically a a direct correction of the Pharisees. He's going to destroy their theology, if you will, or at least their harmatology, right? Their doctrine of sin and soteriology, their doctrine of salvation. The Pharisees were falsely teaching at that time that man's defilement, his sin, comes from sources outside himself. Basically, they were saying this, you're only defiled by what you touch, you taste, or you do. It was your actions, they said, that made you a sinner before God. Hence, you, through your actions, can keep yourself pure before God. That's works-based salvation. They thought of defilement like it was a disease. They thought of it was like a disease. You could avoid it. All you had to do was follow their traditions to be cured of it, to be protected from it. But Jesus comes along and radically destroys that and corrects these errors. And he is making sure at this point in this narrative that everyone around him hears and understands the truth that he is about to bring forth. But obviously, as you read the text, you see that not everyone understood the truth that he brought forth. Look at verses 15 to 17. He says this truth. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Pretty clear, pretty easy to understand. But when he entered the house, so he left the crowd at this point, went with his disciples into a house, probably in Capernaum, the kind of the base of his ministry, and he left the people, it says, what happens? His disciples asked him about the parable. Interesting Word, parable there. I think it's really interesting that they even use that word here with Jesus' truth that he just proclaimed in verse 15. Now, I know there's probably some confusion this morning as you're reading through the text and you're looking at the numbers beside the scriptures. So if some of you are, are looking for verse 16 and wondering if there's a misprint in your Bible, there's not, okay? Or if you're looking at verse 16 in a Bible, it's probably in brackets, And here's why. The disciples think it's a parable. And generally speaking, every time we see a parable spoken by Jesus, he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That was a very common saying of Christ when he told parables. So this is inserted here. It's not an error. If it's in brackets, just know it's not in reality in the oldest manuscripts. And that's why it's not in your ESV. So don't get hung up over the fact that verse 16 is missing or bracketed. Stay on point with me, okay? Aside from that issue itself, here's what I want you to understand. When I read Jesus' parables and compare it to what I see here in Mark 7, I do not believe Jesus' statement in verse 15 is truly a parable. It's a short, if you will, concise, pointed illustration, but there's nothing hidden in what Jesus is saying To all the people. And he's telling them, I want all of you to understand. He didn't do that with parables. He took his disciples aside and explained the meaning to them. But here he's saying, I want everyone to understand. So I don't think it's a parable. Instead, I think it's a revelatory reminder and explanation to the Jews because 
All he's doing here is pointing out what all the religious leaders would have already known and what the Jews would have been hearing when the word of God, the Old Testament, was read to them in synagogue. He was basically saying, look, you know this. They've been hiding it. That's probably why you think it's a parable. You've not heard it in a long time. They've been hiding it. But you know this from the Old Testament, from the Holy Scripture. You know Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every invention or intention, rather, every intention of the heart. Let me read that again. I'm messing it all up. (laughs) The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice the word heart. The thoughts of his heart were evil continually. These men heard this before. They knew this. It's not shocking to them to hear this in that sense. It's not a hidden story within a story here. They knew Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So they knew what God means when he speaks about what comes out of a man. He's referring to the essence of man, his heart, his very being, his nature. So in verse 15, I don't think that This truth is designed as a parable to conceal something, something that's spiritual, that's that's hidden deep within. Instead, I think it's a clear declaration of the truth that was revealed in the Old Testament, and Jesus is bringing it to the forefront to show the contrast before the false teaching rabbis and false teaching scribes and Pharisees and what God's Word truly says about man's condition. But I understand when you... When you hang out with the disciples very long in Mark, you realize they're not always the brightest group. I mean, we have a lot in common with them, right? I can see, though, how what Jesus said seemed cloudy or parable-like to them. Because they have not seen how the practical truth of what he's saying has been taught and proclaimed. Rather, they've been seeing it concealed by the Pharisees and the scribes at that time. So... Christ's words here, Jesus' words to them, I understand, would be hard to hear. Because the point that Jesus is making here is absolutely shocking to the Jew. It's hard to hear. Because for many years, for generations, they've been taught to follow the traditions of the elders in order to keep oneself in good standing with holy God. Jesus is upsetting the apple cart here. His words would have been startling, but those words were not hard to understand. He is quite clear in what he says. But even so, the disciples still don't understand. Again, maybe it's because his words were so shocking. Maybe that's why they were looking. There's got to be a hidden hidden lesson in this. Whatever the case may be, it's also probably why when you read Matthew's account of this, you see the disciples come to Jesus after this encounter with the crowd and subtly try to rebuke Jesus for saying all this to them in the hearing of the Pharisees and scribes. <laughs> they literally say to him, Jesus, don't you know you offended the Pharisees and scribes? And Jesus says, I know. Let them be offended. You can go back and read that. Matthew fifteen ten to 15. In Matthew, they were making him aware of the offense of what he said. And then Peter comes to him and asks a question of him regarding the text we're looking at. And so Peter is always like the spokesperson for 
the disciples. And so here in verse 18, Jesus is now going to respond to their question and their request. But he does so in verse 17 with two questions. They ask a question and he comes back with two questions. Let's look at that. In verse 17, when they entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? So here we have Jesus saying, are you still without understanding? Once again, that's the first question he asks them. You know, you you don't know the tone, right? You don't know the tone. But I'm sure he's grown very familiar with this kind of um, density in their thinking. And I don't think he's coming back with, are you so without understanding? Come on, wake up. I don't think he's doing that. I think he's doing it the way he addresses us. I think he is addressing his disciples with agony in his heart and exercising great and divine patience and love toward these weak men. I'm glad he did that for them. Because that's what he does for us. I mean, how many times when we hear a sermon, we read God's word, and we find ourselves stiffening up against it, stiffening our heart toward it, or failing to understand the gravity of the meaning of the text. Yet God doesn't leave us in that stubborn position or in that misunderstanding. He patiently and he often providentially brings us back again to the truth to see what we have need of and soften our hearts through it. He exercises that kind of patience and love toward his disciples here in this narrative when he addresses them this way. So after that question comes to them, he now poses them not a question regarding their thinking, but he gives them a deeper thing to think about, a theological question. And the second question is found in 18 to 19, And it's not really so much a question as it is a direct explanation of what he was saying in verse 15. He's basically reiterating it a little more bluntly because he knows these guys aren't quite getting it. So I'm going to say it very directly, very bluntly. And if I was to paraphrase it, it would sound something like this. And this is from an Oklahoma perspective, okay? He says, look, guys, nothing you eat, including catfish and bacon, can defile you. Because it only goes into your stomach and then to the toilet, not your heart, not the core of your soul, not your being. So he is speaking very directly and plainly to his disciples in this private session. But he's making a point. It's a critical point. He's telling them, look, what you eat just goes into your body and it's expelled. But man's heart, the very core of our being, the spring of life, don't misunderstand this. It doesn't go into that. It doesn't do anything to that. It doesn't need to. It's already defiled. It's already depraved. Food doesn't defile our being, our heart. It just passes through our body. That's what he's saying really plainly to them. Now, when you read this, and especially what you read at the end, which is Mark's inspired commentary, looking forward to a more revelatory moment in Acts 10, Because Peter is the one who is probably narrating all this to Mark as he writes it down. It says, thus he declared all foods clean. Understand something. There's there's meaning behind the very answer and the question he gives to the disciples here in verse 
18 and 19. And the meaning behind this has to do with his immediate plan. You know what he's going to do next? He's speaking to Jews. What's he going to do next in Mark 7 and 8? He's going back into the Gentile world. What's he going to do there? The same thing he did for the Jews. He's going to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. But he's also doing something else. There's something else behind the words that we read here in 17, 18, and 19. There's an ultimate plan for his disciples. He is going to take his disciples when he ascends into glory and call them to go into the Gentile world and preach the gospel. And he wants them to know you can do it now without fear of being defiled. Peter, kill, rise up, and eat. What God has called clean, you can't call unclean any longer. This is all pointing to the fact that we're going to the Gentile world to proclaim the gospel. That's really what inspired here Mark, I think, by the Holy Spirit to write what he does there in verse 19b. Thus he, Jesus, Son of God, who had all authority, declared all foods clean. He says that because, again, of what happened in Acts 10 to Peter. Acts 10, 9 to 16. Peter's told to rise, kill, and eat what God had made clean. Do not call common. Go to the Gentile world and preach the gospel. That's what's going on in this. There's, a, there's an immediate plan that Jesus has as he is going to enter that Gentile world, and they're going to accuse him of being defiled for doing so. And there's going to be accusations laid against the disciples when they do the same. But he's telling them, have no fear before God. What you eat is not going to defile you in my work. Your heart starts defiled. You're born in sin and iniquity. And it's only changed by the power of God's sovereign grace. For he grants you a new heart. Once he's done that, nothing can defile your being. Not eternally. Now, the comment that, that Peter makes to Mark, likely, there in 19b, and is written by the inspiration of the Spirit, that he declared all foods clean. That, that comment, I think, is really important to remember. And remember this. The immediate issue here in Mark was that of what the Pharisees said about being defiled by eating with unwashed hands according to the traditions of men in order to be right with God. If you were a Jew, you would understand the gravity of this and the shocking statement of what he's saying. What he is confronting here and saying here is going to produce a seismic theological shift that will leave shockwaves for a long, long time. We see the struggle of the, the believers in the New Testament further when they have to go to the Gentile worlds. Even Peter himself wants to compromise on this issue at one point in Galatians. And Paul has to rebuke him to his face. But it's going to leave shockwaves because a seismic theological shift. Because Jesus is doing something radical here, revolutionary here. He is correcting, openly correcting the damnable errors of the Pharisees and scribes and their teaching. And he's doing that by declaring very clearly to all there what truly defiles a man. And he's going to tell them it isn't based on what you eat and neither is your righteousness. It's not based on anything you do. So saints, understand this as, as we come to this text and we look at this, what seemingly is really plain and easy to understand to us, it was hard for them to hear this. But we need to grasp the big picture of what's happening here. When Jesus is declaring, this is, this is the part that, that would have just rocked these Jews to the core. When Jesus declares that food cannot defile a man's soul, 
He is effectively, effectively rather, declaring that not even ceremonially unclean foods can do that. That means catfish and bacon. That can't do that. Yeah, I knew I'd get an amen out of that somewhere. Yeah. But hearing that would have been absolutely unbelievable to a Jew. How dare he? How could he? Why would he? It would be unbelievable to hear unless, unless the one who was saying it, unless the one who was saying it was truly God in the flesh. And he was. And he spoke authoritatively to this issue, calling the people to the truth. You have to keep that in mind. As believers today, as new covenant believers today, we need to keep that in mind. We need to have a proper understanding of the law's role in our lives as Christ's new covenant people. Because it's really clear that in the new covenant, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We say that a lot, right? We leave off something in that though. Fulfill it for us in our place. He obeyed the law. Understand this. This is really critical to what's happening here and to us in the new covenant. He obeyed all of God's law at the deepest level that God had intended it to be applied in his heart. He's the only one who ever has done that. Only one who could do that. And he did it for us. He did it as our perfect substitute. Jesus' life exegeted the spiritual meaning of all of God's law. It explained it. It drew it out. He's the only one who could do it. And he came forth to do it for us who have defiled hearts. So so Mark's declaration in 19b, all foods are now clean. It means this. It means that now, now through faith in Jesus' obedience and our union with him through regeneration, the, the truest obedience here ever imaginable and the meaning of these commands, they were all fulfilled by Jesus In our stead, through faith in that, through faith in what Jesus provided for us in this perfect sacrifice, this life of obedience, we are granted, imputed, credited the very heart of the meaning of obeying God with all of your hearts in him. He did it for us. That's our relationship to the law today. Jesus is the fulfillment of it for his people. Listen, saints, remember that there's a reason for the laws that God gave in the Old Testament. And the very reason for the dietary laws being given in the first place was to distinguish the Jews from the world. It was given to them as a sign of their distinctiveness as God's chosen people. But understand this most clearly according to Jesus. The laws were never given to anyone, Jew or Gentile, to save them. That is not why God gave them to us. The law was never given to save sinners. The law's function and purpose was always to point out our sin and point us to God's grace, his provision, to do what we can't do in and of ourselves. So those dietary laws were only meant to separate the Jews from the Gentiles, the Gentile world, and to preserve them in the world by preserving their health, to keep a presence of his people on the planet, and that served very well for that. 
And he did it because he wanted his people to be holy, set apart from the world, distinct, different. And even their diets and their health were meant to reflect that distinction. But, but, not perfectly. So when we read Galatians 4, 4 and 5, we learn that God knew that man could not be fully set apart from the world, even by the law. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons by his grace. The law pointed us to our need of the Savior, and the Savior accomplished the work of redemption in our stead, living a perfectly holy and righteous life from the heart in our place to make us acceptable before God by faith. So now through faith in Jesus is what we need to understand. This is a radical shift here. This is the seismic shift that's going on here in Mark 7. Through faith in Jesus, God's people don't need those things any longer to distinguish us from the world around us. No. God's people are eternally separated and protected from the corruption of the world from the inside out. Because in regeneration, God gives us a new heart. He takes away the very core that defiles us and grants us something that we can't earn or obtain on our own. And that is the heart of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. So instead of isolating ourselves as the Jews did from the world so we could preserve and and keep our distinction from the world, we are now, as New Covenant Christians, we are now commanded to go into the world. Go into the world and preach the gospel of Christ to every nation, every people group, and reveal to them who God is, His holiness, His grace, His mercy in Christ, and reveal that to them By our transformed lives. It is his spirit that is now at work in us. He has sealed us, set us apart from the world to make us ambassadors for Christ. And our lives will reflect the saving work of Jesus when we are truly born again. And that will distinguish us from the world around us. So Christ's point here in Mark 7, 14 and 15 is really clear. His point is that Christians... It's not about cleaning up the outside like the Pharisees did. On the outside, they were beautiful. They're just, you know, looking so unique from the world around them. But in reality, they were whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. So Christians no longer need that. We don't, we've never needed that as people, period. We no longer need mere outward displays, distinctiveness, as in, look at us, we're holy, Because we are following these rules, these regulations, these rituals handed to us by others. We don't need these outward displays of avoiding certain foods to distinguish us from others and make people know we are the people of God. No, we don't need that anymore. We are now distinguished. We're distinguished by the inward and outward transformation of the spirit who dwells in us Due to Christ's obedience and sacrifice in our place. Listen, reconciliation with God was accomplished through Jesus. And the reconciling power of God is what transforms us through Jesus. That's what makes us different from the world around us. It's not a matter of whether the women wear a head covering in church. It's not a matter of following certain rules. Even Baptist traditions, they don't save you and they can't sanctify you. They'll probably confuse you. 
But we need to understand this because, listen, church, Jesus, understand it in light of the new covenant, Jesus, Jesus did not, let me be clear, he did not erase the dietary law. Instead, he fulfilled God's ultimate design for those laws. And he did it as our truly set-apart Savior. And in him, we find our distinction from the world. So now, as we come to verses 20 and 23, Christ is going to clearly magnify what he's saying. He's going to clearly tell us where man's spiritual defilement originates from. Where does it come from? Is it coming from outside sources, from the things that we're doing or not doing? Or is it coming from someplace else? He tells us where man's spiritual defilement comes from. And this is a truly terrifying revelation from God. Look at verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Here Jesus is clearly pointing out that the source of all of man's corruption is within. It comes from his heart, his own wicked, depraved, infected with sin heart. And then he does something interesting in verses 21 to 22. Here we find Jesus operating like a cardiac surgeon. And he's going to open up our hearts a little bit and show us what's really inside. And when you look at this, it's ugly. And when you look at this, you have a temptation to turn away from it or either apply it to someone else. But saints and sinners here today, this is a picture of your heart before Christ and why you need daily cleansing. Look at 21 to 22. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality or fornications, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they, they are the source of man's defilement. That's what he says. It's interesting in verse 1, he, he starts off by saying, from out of the heart of man comes Evil thoughts there should be a semicolon there because evil thoughts here are really just a, a basic overarching category of all that follows afterward. He, he starts off with this overarching category because Jesus knows this. He knows our heart, right? And he knows that the heart is the center of all of our thoughts and intentions. And he knows that every act and attitude that we express come from the thoughts of our heart. They're devised in the heart. They come from within us. And then we act out those thoughts in reality. That's where all your sin comes from. It's your heart. You can't blame anything else or anyone else for the evil that you've done or are doing. And from this overarching category, Jesus now moves into some distinctions. He gives us, from this overarching category of evil thoughts, he gives us six actions that flow out of the heart of man, our thoughts. It's pretty clear that these are all wicked. We can see that. But it's also very clear that we've all been guilty of these things in our lives. And there is no way to change any of that apart from Christ. The first action he lists for us here is fornication or sexual immorality. It's a very broad term for any kind of sexual sin. It's the Greek word porneia, pornography. It includes that and any other kind of sexual sin. And he's telling us very clearly that act, that action, fornication, understand this, it starts in the thoughts of your heart. 
That's where you're guilty of it at. When did Adam and Eve become guilty as sinners? When they ate the fruit or when they thought about disobeying God's command? The second action he lists is theft. That's obvious, right? Taking something that's not yours. But it's not so obvious to us when we do something like that, that it's beginning, that desire is beginning inside of us to take things that don't belong to us. It starts in the heart. No one just steals something and goes, oh, can't believe I did that. No, you know exactly what you're doing. You're plotting, you're planning, you're thinking, you're lusting for something that doesn't belong to you, and you go and take it. Third action is murder. It's pretty clear. It's the taking of another person's life. But understand what he's saying. He's telling us it's not just the act of murder that is defiling you. It's the thought that is sin in you. Jesus tells us if you hate another person, you have committed murder in your heart. Not your cardia, not your blood pumping muscle, but in your being. You've committed murder in your heart against that person. Thinking about someone and finding in your heart hatred toward that person is considered murder in the eyes of God. See, here's what we don't grasp. The law gave us a picture superficially of what God says is holy, to keep away from these things or to do certain things. But they always went to the heart of the matter. You could keep all the laws, but have your heart far from God. That's never the intention of the law. The law is going to come along and say, you try to keep all these because I called you to be separate, yet you're going to fail in this. And recognizing your failure, I have something greater. I have something I promise you through the provisions that I promised to Abraham. I have a son that I'll send forth to take your place, to do from the heart what you can't do because you don't even see it as coming from the heart. The fourth action Mark gives us that Jesus lists here is adultery. Adultery. This is a very specific sexual sin within marriage. It's one that violates the marriage covenants. But again, it's not just the act of adultery that violates this. It's the thought of it in your heart. Everyone who looks at a person with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart, Jesus said. Listen, I'm going to say this just really plainly, as plainly as I can. Just because our culture has this sort of mindset of, I can look, but I can't touch. Christian, that is wickedness. That is adultery in your heart. Looking in lust at another person is wickedness. It is forbidden. And the good news for you as a Christian is Christ has atoned for it. And as he, in his mercy, came into this world, he gave his life for that. But he also put his spirit in you to keep you from it. That's what will make you distinct. You will lust. Everyone here will. But the difference between a Christian and a non-believer is this. When a Christian sins, they hate their sin. It disgusts them. And they quickly run to Christ for cleansing once again. The unbeliever, when they commit sin, they hate getting caught. They hate the consequences. Not the one thing that was most important, that they've offended a holy and righteous God through their actions. That puts them in a desperate position to look outside themselves to God's promise and provision in Christ. Now, the fifth action listed here is coveting. This is the inner craving for what is not yours. It's the sin that is rooted deeply in all of our hearts. It's the thought that comes into your mind that says, 
I wish I had that. And in reality, what you're thinking is, I can't believe he has that. I should have that. The sixth action in this list is that of wickedness. And this is another overarching term. It's a general term, wickedness. What it does is it includes all other sins, not listed. It's not an exhaustive list. Right? It's a concise list. But wickedness then covers all sins that would cause you to go against God's standards. Offensive acts against God. And that wickedness he's telling us, Jesus is telling us, it's, it's not something you're doing because someone made you do it. Some influence caused you to be wicked. No, he's saying this wickedness, this is an acting out of what's already in your evil intentions, the intentions of your heart, the desires of your mind. So those are the six actions that flow from the evil thoughts of our heart. But Jesus doesn't stop with the actions. He goes a little deeper. He goes further. He gives us six attitudes, six attitudes of the heart as well in verse 22. And you can see those. The first sinful attitude he lists is deceit. This is trickery, deception, right? Trickery that traps others. And why? For your own personal gain. There's plotting involved. There's thinking. There's intentions involved in every action that you're doing to get your advantage. Deceit. The second attitude is sensuality. MacArthur puts it this way. This refers to the unbridled lust of a dirty mind. Unbridled lust of a dirty mind. It's a porneo mind. It's a desire and attitude that flows from the heart and it doesn't stop. It's the constant, incessant desire of the sinner's heart to obtain sexual pleasure gratification, instant pleasure some way, and he entertains it in his mind or she entertains it in her mind. The third sinful attitude. Notice what he's doing, though. He's talking about this evil intentions of your heart, evil thoughts, and it penetrates. We can see this. It penetrates. It affects our actions, and it affects our attitudes. And so he gives the third sinful attitude as envy. Envy. That word is, is literally translated an evil eye, right? An evil eye. It's the evil eye of jealousy that sees the blessings of others with displeasure. Those belong to me. Very similar to this covetous behavior. This is not a pretty list. Guess what? This is the list of what's in our hearts. The fourth attitude is slander. That's in our hearts. And slander is abusive speech toward others or blasphemy toward God, using his name in vain, as if it means nothing, as in a curse word. Using his name vainly to express disgust or joy or OMG, right? That's slanderous against God. In slander, what you're doing is you're putting someone else down. In slander against God, you're putting him down. You're making him menial as nothing to you. And you do that to make yourself look better. That's going on in your heart. The fifth sinful attitude he mentions here is pride. We, we probably all know this, but pride is really the root of all sins. It's what drives them all. And pride is an attitude that is very evident for most people to see when you express it. A prideful person is one who boasts in himself and seeks to set himself above others. The last sinful attitude Jesus lists is foolishness. The foolish person is one who says, obviously, there is no God, but it could also be someone who lives as if there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
verse 23, Jesus is just basically summing up all that he's been saying by, by saying this. All of those actions and attitudes, get this, folks, those flow out of the evil in your hearts apart from being granted a new heart. Now, to kind of make some application of this, listen, I want to be really clear here. We need to make this real for us to understand today because we're not walking around here for the most part dealing with Pharisees and scribes. So to be clear, according to Jesus here, our sin and defilement is not due, obviously, to what we eat or don't eat. But it's also not due to our upbringing. Our defilement can't be blamed on the way we were brought up. Our defilement can't be blamed on our friends and their influence over us. Your defilement can't be blamed on your education or your lack thereof. Your sinful reactions and attitudes can't be blamed on the abuse that others have dealt you. You're not accountable for others, but you can't blame them either. Your defilement and sin in your heart isn't as a result of the movies you watch or the games you play. It's not due to our society or a bad environment in which we live. None of those things are the source of our defilement before God. Our defilement is far worse. It's not outside us. It's in us. The source of our defilement is inside of us. We have an enemy within, and that is a sinful, wicked heart. Now, when you preach that, I don't hear a bunch of, yeah, there's no amens, right? Yeah. Well, it's even worse if you're preaching that to professed unbelievers. Sinners don't like to hear this. They don't like to admit these truths. Sinners like to think that we're all basically good people who occasionally do bad things. And even religious people like to think that they're only sinners if they sin. But the non-religious and even the religious at times, even when they sin, they don't want to be accountable for it. They want to shift the blame as Adam did in the garden when they fell. They blame others as he blamed Eve and ultimately God for his own fall. They don't like to admit that when they sin, it's theirs, their own doing. Instead, they they want to blame their bad behavior on other things or other people. But here in Mark 7, that can't happen anymore, any longer. Because Jesus is teaching us that we sin, get this, we sin because we are sinners at heart. It's not we're sinners if we sin. No, we are sinners because we are sinners at heart. And we sin willfully and, if you will, joyfully when we do so. We are inherently sinful, is what Jesus is telling us. Sinful by nature through Adam's fall and by the choice of our own wicked heart. Now, that's bad news, but there's good news. But apart from understanding both, having a right hermotiology and soteriology, you can get really confused. And that's what was happening here in Mark 7. A bad view of sin, a misunderstanding about sin and the defilement of man will lead to a bad view of salvation. And apart from God's revelation, this is what we do. We blame shift. We want to believe that our defilement and our moral failures have to come as a result of something outside of us. It can't be us. I mean, I'm a good man compared to Justin. The problem is Justin's not the standard. Jesus is. 
How do I stack up there? I'm really not a better man than Justin by any, any stretch. So Jesus comes along here, though, and, and destroys this kind of false ideology. And he's also doing something else. He's confirming what the prophet said in Jeremiah 19.7. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Now, since, as we see here, man's heart is the core of his being, his essence, right? And since Jesus says the core, therefore, of your being is corrupt, unclean, defiled, he's telling us that, that there's, there's no part of us, our being, that can escape corruption, no matter what you do or don't do. We are infectiously depraved. It's the heart of man that is springing forth all of the evil that come into the world. We don't need Satan to do that. We do it all by ourselves. And and knowing that, here's what you need to understand in, in light of the context here. Here's what we're learning from Mark in this. There is no behavioral reform or religious deed or personal resolution that can change the sinner's heart. Nothing. There's nothing we can do to change our hearts. And that means that that our internal defilement requires a solution that's far greater than what we could find, far greater than what we could provide, far greater than any kind of outward change we would make. The only hope defiled men have of being able to stand before a holy creator and judge without fear of his wrath, the only hope in that is this, is to have our unholy hearts Cleansed by trusting in what God himself promises to grant sinners like us in Ezekiel. Go there with me. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. This is the only hope of having our dirty, defiled, depraved hearts cleansed and made new. This is it. It's the promise of God given here. God speaking says, I will... You should circle that every time you see it. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols dealing with the heart. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You know what he's saying there? He's implying there. You'll be able to walk in the statutes of God and obey his rules now in Christ from the heart due to this promise. That's what's implied. Saints, listen. All of God's promises to us find their yes and amen in Jesus. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. His promises here in Ezekiel is that, look, I want to tell you some good news. God will bring this to pass. He's the one who's at work in all this. It's going to come to pass because he's going to send forth his son, Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, who's coming to earth to live in full obedience to his law in our place and then die on the cross to fulfill God's just penalty for our sins Again, in our place, in order to give us a new heart, to take away the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. What do you, what do you think the heart of flesh is referring to here? Who is the only man who walked on the earth that truly had a heart of flesh? That is Jesus. This is the promise of union with him. I'm going to give you 
his heart. You'll have his desires. It'll flow from that what was previously a wicked heart. Now you have a desire to please and honor your God because of Christ. Now listen, if if this today is, is the first time you've heard this or truly thought about the depth of your depravity and defilement... I hope that you're also picking up on this may be one of the best times for you to, to look to God's glorious love and grace that's given to us in Christ's sacrifice. I hope you, I hope you realize that when we hear things like this, the word of God being preached, explain God is addressing us. He is addressing, he's speaking to you in Mark today. And what he's saying is this, I'm calling you to put your hope in Jesus, my promise, cure, and source of cleansing for the defiled. If you haven't trusted in Christ today, I want to beg you in Christ's name and I want to command you in Christ's name to repent of your sins and turn in faith to him. You ought to do that because when you look at that list, he's giving you a picture of your heart. He's also holding out hope. He's holding out hope because every sin that Jesus lists here can be fully forgiven and washed away. That's good news to everyone here. We've experienced that, those who have trusted him. We've been guilty of all these things from the heart, and he has washed them away and made us clean in God's sight. Now, for the believer this morning, though, I do want to add this. I want to make sure you understand how to read lists like this and why they're given to us. Because as we look at that list, we do so our, our own unredeemed flesh, don't we? We see things that we do in the yet remaining flesh to be transformed eternally in glorification. We see things that we do, and we think, when I read that list, maybe I'm not even a Christian could be true. If that's the habitual pattern of your life and there is no repentance over these things, you're probably lost. You're probably going to hell when you die unless you look to Christ and repent. But we need to understand as Christians, as we look at this, this list is a grace to us. And it's a grace to us because what this list does for the Christian is it reminds us afresh, anew, what Jesus has done for us to change our heart. And it reminds us afresh and anew of our need for ongoing cleansing because we are not yet glorified. Righteous in God's sight through faith in Christ, but yet still living in this unredeemed flesh until that is changed at the resurrection. Lists like this, I think, for the Christian should remind us of that and refresh us again and remind us to think about the immeasurable love and forgiveness that we have received through faith in Christ. We deserve eternal wrath from God for all the sins that are in our heart, yet he saved us by his grace through the sacrifice of his son. So here's what I don't want you to do with this list. I don't want you to look at this list as a Christian today and then hear me say, examine your hearts to see if you're in the faith. I'm not saying that this morning. Maybe you need to do that, but I'm not saying that this morning. What I'm saying is this list isn't given to call us to examine ourselves so that we can work harder at being holy. No, that would be what the Pharisees were doing. That's not what it says at all to do. Instead, when you look at this revelation from Jesus in Mark 7... Here's what should happen. You should move toward rejoicing in and acting on the promises that he guarantees as our Savior and our advocate. Those promises that are found in 1 John 1, 9. Because you are saints and simultaneously sinners, you still fall short and need your feet washed. And so he says, if we confess our sins, come into alignment with God's view of your sin. If I confess my sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, this is what God is calling all of us in this room to do today. And we see the sins in this list, the sins of our heart. 
So I will say now, examine your heart today in light of the truth. Examine your heart and look to the source of your cleansing once again and rejoice. Look to Christ and rest in the cleansing power and love he expressed to us, the blood that was shed at the cross in our stead. Let's give thanks to him today for that. Heavenly Father, we come to you again thankful from the heart, Lord, because of Christ. Thankful that you have provided a source of hope for defiled sinners like ourselves. You've provided that that source through the sacrifice of your son in our stead and the life he lived in our place. We thank you, Jesus, for this willing gift to us who don't deserve it. I pray today, God, that if there are any here who have yet to look to you in faith and what Christ has done to be saved, I pray you would be most honored, glorified, and praised through the redemption of their souls for their good and Christ's glory. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.